Hello, I'm Julie Bindle, and today I'm talking with Pragna Patel. She's a founding member of South All Black Sisters and Women Against Fundamentalism. She's a human rights activist and an all-round excellent feminist. And we talk about religious fundamentalism, forging solidarity between different oppressed groups, and redefining feminism. So, Pregnant, first and foremost, tell me how you first got involved in political activism of any kind. Well, the first time I became aware of political activism, I think, was was in 1979, when as a 16-year-old, I um, watched on television with bewilderment, but also kind of shock and and wonderment um, at the Southall racial uprisings. And we didn't live far from Southall. We lived on the outskirts of Southall and uh, sort of, you know, just bordering Northall. Um, And so it was on my doorstep. And I was, you know, trying to make sense of what was going on. I'd never seen anything like it on television involving young generations of South Asians rising up against the police, chanting anti-racist slogans that I kind of didn't always completely understand. Um, I was in the sixth form at the time. And when I went to school, I mean, it was so momentous, it, you know, the, sort of the television coverage of it was back to back. And, and so it was obviously very high profile. But when I went to school, there was not a murmur. Um, and I went to school in sort of the other side of Southall, which, was, which actually is in the borough of Hounslow. And again, a, a large school with a huge Asian population. Um, the second largest population after the white English. And there was nothing. The school carried on as if nothing had happened. There was no mention. There was no reference to it. There was no discussion. There was no attempt to ask people what they thought, whether whether uh, some of the children had been caught up in it or their families, you know, nothing. So it was, so in a way, that was my first real awareness of political activism, although I didn't quite appreciate the significance of that moment. Um, And then after that, it was um, when I was at university in the, uh, you know, in 80, 81, 82, that I became involved in student activism. Um, And, you know, and then uh, some of my earliest forms of activism was students um, supporting, anti-deportation movements in Manchester you know so we would take we would organize I was very active in the student union so we'd organize coaches of students to on anti-deportation demonstrations that were taking place in Manchester and again what struck me about those was the 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 fact that they were led by young Asian men and women sort of my age or just above you know and it really opened my eyes to what it meant to be Asian in the UK, because until that moment, I was kind of quite embarrassed about my background and embarrassed about who I was, because I'd spent my entire 
life in schools and watching my parents face racism, you know, uh, playground racism, sort of that got more menacing as I entered secondary school, uh, seeing my parents, you know, never being uh, promoted uh, despite doing jobs forever um, in factories um, and so on. Um, and, you know, and facing racism when we were little and they couldn't get housing. Uh, facing racism in employment, you know, once even being stopped by the police when my father was driving his car, I'm trying to understand all that. So, you know, um, seeing these young Asian men and women um, was like confronting role models for the first time. Uh -huh. it, it really, until that moment, you know, it, your background wasn't something you talked about you didn't mention it nobody mentioned it you quite ashamed of it you're made to feel inferior in every way that's the reality of racism so uh, you felt an outsider so seeing these people you know sort of defiant and feisty and shouting slogans and you know uh, confronting the state confronting the police it made me realize that there was another way of being Asian, you know? So that was the, the, your first introduction, those early riots to resistance and to political activism that disrupted the status quo. Would that be fair? Absolutely. The race, the, in terms of race, yes. But I think my, you know, uh, you know, the adage, uh, feminist adage, you know, the personal is political. Right? Mm -hmm. So in a way, I suppose my first, act of um, political activism was challenging my own family who had mapped out a route for me that you know sort of ended was going to end in a forced marriage you know so yeah. uh, resisting that and and it was a struggle I struggled for a whole year to resist a forced marriage and carried out what I now consider to be a whole year of civil disobedience and so in a way, that was my first kind of feminist awakening, although I couldn't articulate it like that if you'd asked me then. Um, but so in terms of challenging the patriarchal status quo, it was my own, you know, having to challenge the constraints in my own family and community, the religious and cultural impositions that, you know, said marriage was women's destiny and motherhood was women's destiny and that there was no other alternative there were no women in my family and community that went to higher education. There was no role models, you know, mm -hmm. models for us. So in a way, I don't know where that came from, but that kind of real struggle, the real sort of civil disobedience sort of activism that I engaged in for a whole year and wore my parents down to the point that they gave in before I did, <laughs> you know, was a real achievement actually it's my first real victory so I would say that was my first political uh you know stance um and, and form of resistance but then as I said you know sort of finding um uh, finding political brothers and sisters if you like in the wider you know community in relation to fighting anti-racism that made sense to me um and then seeing young Asian women, particularly and young, um, actually minority women, there were Afro-Caribbean, there were Middle Eastern women, forming the campaign groups out for Black Sisters. 
So every summer I used to come home and on the streets of Southall, I used to see these really young Asian, primarily Asian women selling uh, Southall Black Sisters, which was, a, which was then just a campaigning group, newsletters. And they had formed in 1979 in the wake of the racial uprisings in 79 and the death of Blair Peach and so on. And, uh, but they had formed because they'd broken away from the anti-racist movement of which they were a central part on the basis that, you know, the anti-racist movement was sexist and didn't really address the women's question. And on the basis that their lives as black women were shaped, not just by race alone, but also by, you know, um, um, you know, sex discrimination and inequality. So um, they would already started campaigning. They were, you know, sort of working around issues of workplace rights for black women, uh, supporting anti-deportation campaigns, um, you know, supporting women uh, fighting for unionization in the workplace. So all this was going on. And of course, I just completely gravitated towards them um, and kind of, you know, asked to join. Um, and by the time I left, and so I would, you know, try and go to meetings. They met in each other's homes and that, wherever they could find a space. Um, and then by the time I finished university and came back to Southall, they had all dispersed. They'd gone on to academia, they'd gone on to do other work and so on. So, and I had just found myself and I just found, you know, what I thought was my political home. So I just said, set about really constructing that home all over again. Uh, of course. I mean, anyone that knows you and your work would know that you would, if you don't, think a particular institution is working you'll knock it down and build a new one and and that's the bigger picture as well isn't it that I've heard you speaking about in recent years about how the world is in such a terrible state actually mm. we need to really think about what root and branch reform is how you can actually rip out the 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 structure and mm. and create something new is that where you feel we're going right now or can we is there hope to rebuild the left for example um the working class communities that did resist oppression just yeah. as you you first saw in that riot when you were at school i think there has to be hope julie i really do i think um you know if there isn't hope we give up you know yeah. and we're not going to give up you know and there are struggles being waged by people, ordinary people, men, women, you know, around the world, in this country. We just don't hear enough of it. We don't do enough to pay attention to those struggles or provide solidarity. Do we, you know, what state are we in? Well, I would say we're in a very dangerous moment mm -hmm. in our history of activism, in, political, in our political history at the moment we have the resurgence of the right. We have states globally turning to authoritarianism, you know, uh, populism uh, based on sort of denigration of the poor, of migrants, of minorities. We have part of that turn to, uh, towards authoritarianism. We also have the rise of religious fundamentalism in all religions um, who, who have been on a march post-Rushdie. Um, mm -hmm. 
and you know have been on an upward march actually and have gained you know been in the ascendancy and gained and gained and gained considerable power in the communities and you know aided and abetted by states who see them as their partners often um we have lived through austerity we have lived through what i would see as a neoliberal economic uh, policies of the state, which has also, you know, uh, decimated working class communities, decimated sort of industrial bases and manufacturing industries. Um, and that began with Thatcher, didn't it? Yes, um, that, certainly did. Yeah, and, you know, and groups like SBS formed in the shadow of Thatcher. So it was always there and it always shaped our our outlook and our politics in terms of what we did, you know. So, and, you know, although we organized autonomously as black women, we never separated off from social justice movements or the left. I, at least I don't think I did. And, you know, and it was very much that as women or as blacks or as black women, in my case, you know, we needed to create our own spaces to articulate our own sort of understanding of oppression that we face, to, to try and understand race consciousness, to understand where we were and what we needed to do. And that was all necessary. But we never separated ourselves off from other social justice movements. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important. I think what we were trying to say, and maybe it was clumsy, maybe we didn't pay enough attention, uh, to our strategies and tactics and so on. But what we were trying to say was that by organizing autonomously, we're not, we're not trying to um, uh, fragment wider social justice movements. We're trying to strengthen them. Exactly. Because ultimately, we can't succeed if we only push sectional interests. We will only succeed whether we're fighting for women's rights or migrant rights or climate justice or anything or working class you know sort of empowerment we will only succeed if we can find a way of banding together and this is another thing that i've learned from radical black women like yourselves organizing which is how oppressions intersect but also how we come to understand our yes. own place in the world through that so as a white working class girl growing up, I understood our community, our family were disadvantaged, were oppressed, that there was prejudice and snobbery and discrimination against us. But I didn't come to understand how that affected me specifically as a girl and then a young woman until I suppose I grappled with the fact that the men within my community, and that included union activists such as my father who worked in the steel mills that Thatcher eventually destroyed that they were less interested in women than they were in their male colleagues and actually what they were fighting for was the rights of men to be emancipated and we as women would just somehow follow suit and the revolution would automatically mean we would be carried along with that and I think there's some similarity, isn't there? In there's total similarity. When Southall Black Sisters formed, we were in a in effect from our inception, we were kind of like dissenting against the kind of movements around us, as 
even though we borrowed from all of them and were part of all of them. Mm -hmm. Like a child coming to, you know, <laughs> bite the hand that feeds it. Do you know what I mean? So yes. in a way, um, by organizing ourselves, we were saying to the anti-racist movement, look, race is not the only factor that shapes our, the, you know, our experiences. That it, we also have to look at how racial um, racism, racial violence, or racial discrimination is gendered, right? And once mm -hmm. you factor that in, then Black women's experiences are similar and dissimilar to Black men, you know? Yep. Um, and um, an example of that, a very good example of that, is the way in which um, I tried to analyze what was happening around the virginity testing of Asian women, right? which was a notorious kind of policy and practice that the British state had implemented as part of its anti-immigration, you know, sort of um, policy. Um, and it was obviously clandestine because they couldn't justify it publicly. So, you know, and when that practice was exposed, it was based on this kind of racialized, but also gendered idea that Asian women are all virgins before they get married. So if we test them to see whether they're virgins or not, as they enter the UK to join their husbands, we will be able to tell whether they're really joining their husbands and are bona fide wives, or whether they're just using marriage as a ruse, as a way of getting entry to the UK. You know? Do you know, I wonder how many under 30s know that that was a policy of the British state. I wonder yes. how many are hearing that for the first time now. I think so. And I think, you know, these are the kind of histories that we have to kind of tell and tell and tell again, you know, stories we have to tell again. And it highlights so well the fact that when, um, you know, obviously when that practice was exposed, you had, you know, of course, outcry. Um, you had, you know, anti-racist demonstrations and protests decrying the kind of racism of the state. Um, but I think, you know, what was missed was this was racism, but it was highly gendered. It was also based on very sexist stereotypes about Asian women as passive, as virgins, as submissive, as obedient, as docile, you know, all these things. So here was an example of how you look at the intersection of violence against women and actually the kind of violation of women's bodily integrity along with racism, you know, with racism and what that meant. So that, you know, we were saying to the anti-racist movement, as women, we will not subjugate our interests in the interests of just the anti-racist struggle. But similarly, you know, at the same time, we saw a burgeoning, um, you know, white feminist movement uh, that was beginning to make demands around shelters for abused women, uh, you know, abortion, contraception, um, sex discrimination in the workplace, all of these, you know, demands, all of these issues were being raised. And similarly, we were saying to, you know, our white sisters and feminists that um, sexism alone doesn't shape our experiences as Black women, and that we also have to then understand uh, oppression, women's oppression, by factoring in race, class, and so on, you know. Women have similar experiences, but they also have very specific experiences. And what does that lead us to? It leads us to 
you know, what we tried to articulate in the 80s as South of Black Sisters, and I still stand by to this day, is the need for multi-directional struggles all at, all at once, you know. Um, so for me, um, you know, there was never a question. These were moments of dissent, to dissent against anti-racist orthodoxies of the anti-racist movement, dissent against the orthodoxies of the feminist movement, dissent also against working class movements. You know, we actually were part of a solidarity uh, delegations to the mining communities, for example. I remember. I remember that well. And in fact, I was going to ask you about that because so much history crosses over where we see that we were on different in different geographical areas, carrying different banners, but learning from each other in a way that I think the elite refuses to accept. And, and one thing that I was thinking of last time I heard you speak was about how northern, northeast working class communities where I was raised in the 60s and 70s, white working class women worked alongside Asian women, mm. black women. So mm. although there was terrible racism from mm. white people within my community, there was also an understanding and a... We were in close proximity with Asian people that white middle class people were not. Because we worked together, we worked in the factories together, we we often were sacked by the same bosses, maybe for different reasons, but there we were all in it together. White working class women were way more likely to marry men of colour and have babies, have children with them, than were their middle class counterparts. And, actually, and, and I think that what, what women and therefore their daughters learned, white women and therefore their daughters learned, from working alongside Asian women at that time in that context was that it wasn't just about what happened to those women. You know, those women are forced into marriage. Well, white working class women knew that they couldn't say no to marrying the local boy and having his kids because there was nowhere else for her to go. Those white women knew that they also were sometimes killed and the men used the excuse of honour, although they used different language. And those white women also knew if they weren't virgins when they married, they were seen as whores and slags and therefore duly punished. So there were all those connections. I think that white women learned, if they were open-minded enough, from working and standing alongside with Asian women. And I think that I think it, the, the, the direction of travel is both ways, because I also think that as black women... We, you know, one of the things that I think is incredibly difficult to do now is to mobilize around the term black, you know, whereas in the 80s, um, we adopted black. I'm not saying it wasn't a contested term or that everyone, you know, felt uh, at ease or comfortable with the term black. But for those of us who are politically active, it was readily adopted as a mobilizing term because it kind of uh, symbolized the struggle, unity in struggle. It symbolized commonalities of struggle. It symbolized commonalities of experiences of racism, histories of colonialism. Of course, it was borrowed from the American civil rights movement, but it was, you know, it was a secular term too. So, um, you know, there wasn't that emphasis so much on what divides us as what unites us. And and I think that's one of the key differences 
in terms of today's politics and politics then, which is that I actually think that we have moved away, black or white, um, we've moved away from that kind of uh, understanding that we have to find ways of uniting and working through our differences. We don't shove them under the table or under the carpet. We work through them. We try and understand the kind of multifaceted experiences of oppression and different women's standpoints and positioning. But we then find a way of uniting all those experiences in, in, in a common struggle. And I think that is also based on, you know, sort of the ways in which we reached out to kind of understand our humanity, our common humanity. Whereas now, you know, everybody sort of, I mean, you've heard me talk lots about this, Julie, but you know, the rise and rise and rise of identity politics is based very much on difference. It's emphasis is on difference. What makes me different from you? But the problem doesn't end there. You know, if it just ended there, then, you know, that's fine. That's part of the, that's part of the conversation. Why are my experiences different from yours as part of the conversation? But it, it's not an end in itself. And beyond that, beyond understanding our different locations, social, you know, sort of economic locations and so on, it's about trying to figure out, okay, so within, given these different standpoints, how do we then come together? And on what basis do we come together? And for what purpose, you know? So I feel that identity politics now is very much focused on individual change as opposed to kind of challenging systemic structural forms of oppression. And, and would, you, would you call that neoliberalism an individualistic take on identity? I think neoliberalism has got a lot to do with way, the way we where we found ourselves absolutely because focus is very much on individual change individual mobility and if you look at all this kind of you know rise of consciousness by uh, unconscious bias training it really reminds me of the discredited race awareness training that was conducted in the 80s yes. when racism moved into the corporate you know sphere and then became you know, part of an industry, you know, what I call the race relations industry, where, you know, the whole, this whole rolling out of anti-racial awareness training amounted to speaking to individuals about challenging their own personal forms of prejudice, uh, as if that in itself can address the kind of structural forms of discrimination, the embeddedness of race discrimination in, for example, you know, the very framework of the immigration and uh, an asylum system. Well, exactly. I mean, I remember give, being given uh, such training back in the bad old days of the early 80s when it became industrialised and corporatized, And it amounted to this. We can tell you how you can differentiate a Sikh from a Hindu. Yes. And we can tell you how to speak to an Asian lady when she opens the door, which amounted to ask for her husband. I mean, it was appalling. And when we raised issue with that, we were told that this is their culture and you can't, it's rude and disrespectful to speak against it. So it was anything but useful training. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think we see echoes of that in the kind of, you know, the growth and growth of kind of um, unconscious bias training, which is the focus is on individual change, the focus is on personal forms of prejudice, and the focus is on understanding diversity. It's not on equality, you know, right. we're not focusing on equality. But, you know, if you look around these days, what's the language that we're using? Diversity, inclusion, you know, there, there, that's the kind of language. I think that's a very corporatized uh, and a very kind of professionalized language, got nothing to do with challenging structures of power. And it also doesn't move anything on ever. And I see echoes of that in the very conservative with a small c um, lesbian and gay rights movement, where largely gay men were asking to be tolerated, were asking to be accepted, were saying we can't help it, we were born that way. I mean, as if the born that way argument ever helped people of colour, Jews, whoever. I mean, it's a ridiculous notion that innateness means that you'll get your rights and that you'll be protected from oppression. And so we, we were told we need to be accepted, we need to be tolerated. And I remember those of us in the more radical wing of the lesbian and gay movement saying... We don't want your toleration. Yeah. You know, we don't want to be accepted as an abnormality. Yeah. We demand our rights. And yeah. it, it's kind of similar, isn't it, I think? I think there is a lot of similarities in the way in which identity politics work. It's kind of infected all social justice movements. Mm-hmm. Yes. And the, the other thing about it is that it's very much focused on what is seen to be offensive. Okay. <laughs> So what we now have is a situation where, you know, you just say you found something offensive and you just cancel. You know, we moved away from understanding when something is inciting violence or hatred of, you know, of a real meaningful kind. And when something is just offensive and but people are, you know, sort of asking to be wrapped up in cotton wool and, you know, so that they don't have to be offensive. It's like we've elevated a right that doesn't exist the right that's right ended right that's right so suddenly it's all the focus again is very individualized it's all about how i feel what i believe and it's all very subjectivized rather than looking at objective systems of power and inequality and you know we see that we see that play out in the way in which religious identity politics works or black identity politics and even gender critical ideology, you know, um, uh, sorry, gender identity ideology works, right? So in all these spheres, what we're seeing is the way in which um, uh, dissent, uh, the suppression of dissent is the way to, to demand your right. So if I feel offended, um, I will also feel like I'm being cancelled out. And the only way I can stop being offended is if I stop you from speaking. And yet, and that's absolutely right, and yet it's actually only particular views from particular people that seem to cause the type of offence that carries the weight that gets one cancelled or condemned or, or completely discredited. Some, some people can speak freely, and I'm sure we're offended every day of our lives. Of and others find offence almost a criminal act mm. that they have the right to be protected from. Um, 
I think so. And I think the question then is, um, you know, how are you defending, how are you defining um, the kind of offence that you're experiencing and who's deciding whether that is offensive or not? Mm -hmm. I think these are very political questions. They're not individual. They're not about, you know, individuals standing up. They're, they're actually part of political projects. And I think that's really important to understand that, you know, what we're talking about when we're talking about, you know, suppression of free speech, suppression of dissent, is that these are part of political projects that I think are quite regressive. Totally. And 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 then when we look towards the future, the, the thing that feminists have to our advantage is that we are the most optimistic movement on the planet. Because we have to be. Because first and foremost, we don't believe that boy babies are born bad. And we don't believe in the inevitability of oppression or patriarchy or dominance. And and I, I think that makes us... I, I think, if I'm right, I think it keeps us going and I think it keeps us with our eye on a world that we want to live in as opposed to thinking, well, let's just minimise the harm Let's minimise the damage. But in the meantime, what are we doing? What do we need to do? Do we need to get back onto the streets? Do we need to mobilise particular groups of people? Do we need to actually get back to that stage where we are just going crazy and demanding to be heard? I think so. I think that, you know, of course we have to um, think about ways in which we are going to you know, come together, the ways in which we're going to raise our voices, the ways in which we are going to try and seek change. And all of that's really, really important. But I think key to this is that we first have to kind of understand where we are at this political moment. And for me, I think that feminism is meaningless if it's also not linked to the desire for democracy i agree because around the world what we are seeing you know is a massive assault on democracy itself and democratic principles in which feminism has a key stake yes you will not get our rights under totalitarian theocratic or any other kind of state you know we can only uh, develop and forge a kind of feminism that at its core is democratic. So that's the first thing I would say. So that means we have to challenge uh, political projects that are authoritarian. And are not un- and not make alliances with those. Because when they come into power, who are the first people they will target? Exactly. And those single issue women's rights campaigners that I wouldn't call feminists because they're totally disengaged from the left and are working with right-wing autocrats they don't seem to care or understand that we will all be in the firing line if they do come into power absolutely and that women will be the first on the firing line you know i think the thing is that right-wing movements authoritarian theocratic all these movements that we are seeing on the rise globally are at their core are about controlling women 
at the core, they're about controlling female sexuality. And so to align with them, even on a single issue basis, is to shoot ourselves in the foot. And it is extremely dangerous because what we're doing is empowering them. We are aligning with them and giving them legitimacy and um, you know, helping them on the way towards power. I agree. And once they have that power, the first thing they will do, having risen to it, uh, often um, gain power through democratic means, is to do- destroy democracy and is to destroy women's rights. So, you know, aligning with the Christian fundamentalists in America on the basis that you don't like the teaching of sex education in schools is going to be hugely counterproductive because you are going to bring into power people who will then use their power to, to, you know, mount a massive assault on women's rights, women's reproductive rights, as we have seen in America, but not only in America, other places, Poland, you know, and everywhere else. So I think for me, it's a vision of feminism, a political understanding of feminism as a democratic feminism, which also means equality for all. Yes, know? and, and as, as you say, it's a huge risk to campaign with those people that want to destroy all our basic rights as women. And I used to think, how stupid can they be? And now I think, no, it's actually just that they don't care. They, they think that they're wrapped in a cocoon of privilege they're not i mean white middle class women heterosexual women in the states will still have rights removed they still have rights to remove and then you know there's not just about sort of white women in the states but elsewhere too i think the problem is that we have to redefine what it means to be feminist right and go back to the idea of feminism as a transformative project yes you know and we cannot transform society if we don't take people with us, if we don't take the poor, if we don't take the other marginalized groups, if we don't take the gays and lesbians, if we don't take, you know, the elderly, the disabled with us, you know. Mm-hmm. So we're going to, we have to, I think, uh, find a way of making that journey from what we are, you know, the kind of political the the situation we're in now which is a kind of political blind alley of identity politics towards a politics of solidarity easier said than done julie i don't even know what we're going to do but instinctively you know my gut feeling is we have to define feminism all over again for a new generation we have to learn from history too you know, we've gone through some of this, these things. We came, you know, sometimes we went through the wash millions of times and came out with something that was worth hanging on to, you know. Yes, and I'm thinking, for example, of the Kirinji Alawalia days, you know. There were black women, there were white women. You know, we were feminists. We were campaigning around women who kill. We were trying to get the courts and the law and the public to understand the context in which women are driven in desperation and fear to kill abusive husbands. We were also injecting, you know, other politics, you know, the understanding different cultural backgrounds, understanding different class backgrounds, understanding, you know, how despite these differences, we come together. And we didn't agree necessarily with strategies. We didn't necessarily agree on every point, 
But we managed to come together in, I think, what was a wonderful moment of feminist unity. Yes. You know, and, and that was such an empowering moment. And it was one of the few times since the heyday of feminism in the 60s and 70s where, you know, we saw the large numbers of women gathering outside, say, the Court of Appeal or the Home Office, you know, challenging the state to protect women better and to understand domestic abuse, you know, outside the courts. And there were black women, there were white women, there were professionals, there were survivors, you know, there were activists. There were just women from all stripes, of all stripes and sizes and backgrounds in such a wonderful euphoric moment of unity. And so I think, you know, there have been times and we need to try and remind ourselves of that and work out and to think about how we got there. And, you know, they don't last. We have to carry on sort of maintaining and building those kinds of moments of unity into something that's much more long lasting. But I don't think we can do it if we don't understand the political context in which we currently uh, are, you know, that we are currently facing and actually understand the impact of the economic, uh, the neoliberal economic structures on our lives. We don't understand the impact of racism that's still alive and well, particularly through the immigration asylum frameworks and policies or the kind of sexism that, you know, exists in many kinds of manifestations, both institutionally and in communities and, and deal with all of that, you know, as well as understand that, you know, our struggles are knitted together. I mean, we've really got to find a way of, of moving towards a politics of solidarity based on a kind of vision of feminism as a transformative, empowering kind of, you know, idea. I hope you enjoyed that discussion. And if you want to hear more of Pragna, you can hear her and many other brilliant feminists in Cardiff, October the 22nd to 24th at the Philia Conference, the largest feminist gathering in Europe, perhaps even the world. See you next time.